Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 29. I'm I'm still in complete um, disbelief that we've made it this far. So thank you to all the listeners. I hope you're doing well. It's been another cold and dreary weekend here in Melbourne. A lot of rain, a lot of grey skies. So I hope you're taking the time to keep warm and look after yourself and loved ones. Today's episode is all about EMDR. Caroline Burrows is an accredited mental health social worker and psychotherapist and she shares with the audience, with you guys, uh, with you all, some of her journey into social work and how she ended up being an EMDR therapist and an EMDR trainer. Caroline is uh, is an amazing uh, practitioner. She has a practice out in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne as well as a consultancy business where she does training and supervision so you can check out her information in the show notes and um, yeah I hope you enjoyed today's interview there's a lot of really interesting work being done in the EMDR space Uh, recently the World Health Organization have considered EMDR one of the frontline treatments for trauma and it's also used for a variety of other mental health issues or unhelpful thinking patterns, in particular around anxiety, trauma, uh, depression. And Caroline explains a little bit more of those in today's episode. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Welcome to another episode of the Inside Social Work podcast. Today, I'm talking with Caroline Burrows, who is one of my supervisors, which is, uh, just had to shout that out, but she is an incredible social worker with heaps and heaps of experience, but I'll let her introduce herself. Uh, Welcome, Caroline. Thank you, Marie. It's lovely to be here. Do you want to give the audience and the listeners a bit of a, I guess, a background of who you are and what you're doing? Sure. So my background is in social work. So I'm an accredited mental health social worker. And I've also gone on to do further postgraduate study in psychotherapy. So these days I call myself an accredited mental health social worker and a psychotherapist. And I work in a number of different roles. I have a private practice that I've developed over the last five years called Mindful Living Counselling and Psychology. So I'm the director of that uh, counselling and psychology practice. I also do a lot of supervision and consultancy work with allied health uh, mental health professionals, um, particularly with a focus on a trauma therapy that I'll be talking about today. I also work as a senior social worker at the Melbourne Clinic, which is a private psychiatric hospital in Melbourne, where I run an inpatient trauma therapy program. We could have almost done an episode just on wearing multiple hats because that is so many. (laughs) That's right. It's it's a it's a juggle. I can I can tell you that. But I love what I do. Did you picture when you started social work um, that that all these things were possible? Did Look, you- I didn't even expect that I would end up where I have, and so it's amazing how things transpire in ways that we could never have expected. That's certainly been the case for me. I think that's the beauty of this field. Is I think maybe people don't realize just how broad it is and how transferable those skills are and what room there is to add more to it and tweak and change and customize based on interest or life experience or life stage. 
I couldn't agree more. And I think that we often don't end up where we start. And that's the beauty of this. And I think that social work offers enormous variety, which is what I love about it, actually. The most um, important thing for me about it is the diversity and the opportunity to do different things. Fantastic. So we were talking today, we wanted to create an episode around um, EMDR. So that's a particular um, interest and specialty of yours. Could you share with the audience uh, really basics? What is EMDR? They've probably heard about it. It's picked up uh, momentum over the last kind of 10 years. And now it's been recognised by Medicare as a... Psychological strategy. It's a bit yeah, of a... Those ones, a yep. <laughs> yeah. So what is it? Tell us what it is. <laughs> well, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitisation and Reprocessing, which I always say sounds like some sort of computer program. It's actually a trauma-focused psychotherapy. Now, EMDR is a therapy that was developed in the late 1980s by an American psychologist called Francine Shapiro. And it's gained a lot of momentum, as you mentioned, particularly in the last 10 years. It's been used internationally over the time since it was first developed about 30 years ago. But I'd say in the last 10 years, it's gained a lot more momentum and credibility and traction in the mainstream. It was quite contentious initially because it's a unique type of therapy. But as you mentioned, it's now endorsed um, as a focused psychological strategy through Medicare Australia. And also it's endorsed by the World Health Organization as a gold standard treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. So essentially that's what it is. It's a treatment for PTSD and other related difficulties. When it was first developed, it was really just four pretty single incident um, traumas, but now it's developed into a much more integrative therapy that can be useful for anybody that's experiencing difficulties in their life that are connected to earlier events in their experience. So it could be things like anxiety or depression or low self-worth or more common um, or in um, the case of PTSD, more traditional symptoms, I guess, like flashbacks, nightmares, um, that sort of thing. So this is a treatment that is based on the idea that the brain has an innate ability to heal just like the body does but that when we experience very stressful or traumatic events in our life the brain's ability to process that information and put it in the long-term filing cabinet of our brain so to speak gets interrupted and as a result it means that those events continue to be relived long after they're over and continue to have a legacy on how we see ourselves and how we feel about others and the world. So what we're wanting to do in EMDR therapy is to be able to activate the brain in a way that helps it to resolve those events, those memories that haven't been processed adequately by the brain. And the neuroscience tells us that simply talking about trauma doesn't tend to resolve it. And that's for various reasons that are beyond the scope of this podcast. But EMDR is aimed at trying to help the brain get get going, kick-starting, if you like, that natural innate ability to heal. It's a bit like removing a splinter from your finger. When you remove the splinter, the finger can resume its natural healing ability. We've removed the stuck point. So in EMDR, we're wanting to identify which events in a person's life are most relevant to their current problems or symptoms, and then help the brain to process those events. And we do this through this quite unique 
um, use of what we call bilateral stimulation, which is usually eye movements, which is why it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And essentially what it involves is the client calls to mind that memory notice the thoughts and feelings and sensations that accompany it and then the therapist guides them to rapidly move their eyes or there are some alternative ways we can do it while they're thinking about that memory and allows it allows the brain to process that material there are repeated periods of pausing in between to check in and to see what's happening and three things usually tend to take place over the course of the session the memory tends to become more distant, it becomes less emotionally disturbing, and then the person's thinking about the event starts to change. And so once we tackle a number of key memories in a person's life that are underpinning their current symptoms, we start to see change in their life. Now, I will stress that this is a therapy that has a number of different phases. So the components I just shared with you are the most unique parts to EMDR therapy, but of course, there is a need for assessment and for preparation before you get into that. And I, th I think that's the bit that a lot of people don't know. So if you kind of Google or you YouTube what is EMDR, you just see the reprocessing. That's right. We don't have as much awareness often of the different phases and the assessment. And that can take weeks, months. It could take years depending on where that person's at. And you're bringing in so many other tools and resources to help resource that person to then do the rest of the phases. That, that's exactly right. And so probably one of the main um, misconceptions about EMDR therapy is that you dive straight into resolving those memories in the very first session. And while EMDR is known to be a, a more rapid treatment option than other talk therapies where we talk about those events for months or longer, it is often a quicker approach. It's not a magic cure. And that's probably the most important thing to convey about it is that if a client is not um, sufficiently confident to handle emotional distress. You don't want to go diving into opening up those memories and reprocessing them using that bilateral stimulation because they will be overwhelmed by it. So we do need to spend some time preparing the clients. Having said that, some people who have done previous therapy may be able to get into it quite quickly. And for others who have uh, less experience of therapy, but have a more um, straightforward trauma. Like, for example, they may have not had a history of trauma, but have had a car accident. To reprocess that memory is likely to be very quick. So it's a, a treatment that is modified to the individual. You mentioned that EMDR was originally for PTSD, and since then it's involved to include a number of other things. What are some of the other areas that it can be used for? Really, it's useful for any current life difficulty that has a connection to unresolved experiences in the person's past. And so that could be they may be experiencing anxiety, for example, or it may be that they're feeling very depressed and low in their self-confidence. It may be that they have anger outbursts because of experiences in their past. They may be feeling overwhelmed by grief or loss. They may have a particular fear or phobia. People may have developed an eating disorder or a substance use difficulty. So really, it cuts across many different clinical presentations. And to be trained in EMDR, what is, what's the process? So um, some things like ACT or CBT maybe aren't as structured and rigid in the types of training you have to do, but EMDR is a little bit different in that space. 
That's right. So a person does need to be a trained mental health professional to be able to embark on the training and on the EMDR Association of Australia's website, they do detail specifics about what that means in terms of what sort of qualifications are appropriate but it's not specifically just for one discipline it's not just for example psychologists so you could be a, a mental health social worker you could be um a, a, an occupational therapist who's done mental health training you could be a, a psychiatric nurse you could be a psychologist so there's a variety of options there the treatment um training itself um includes um, what we call an accredited basic training program which has been accredited by the emdr association of australia and that is currently delivered um, by a number of different trainers in Australia um, across level one and level two or sometimes called weekend one and weekend two um, depending on the training organization that's delivered across um, a number of days for each I can't specify exactly because it depends but there's a, a, a contained number of days of level one training and then level two training and to have completed the basic training program a person needs to have done both that level one and level two and have had 10 hours of clinical consultation with a, a, an approved what we call consultant in EMDR therapy. So that's considered the basic training program. And then from there, there are lots of advanced training options. It's a, we're all lifelong learners. There will be um, advanced training workshops, webinars and opportunities for years to come for a clinician once they've done that basic training. I will say that when a person has completed their level one training, which is those early um, number of days of training, they can get going with using it with their clients but they're discouraged from using it with more complex presentations until they've completed the level two and had those hours of supervision and the supervision is something you offer so that tell us about the supervisory role in that that's right. So I am an accredited trainer and a consultant in EMDR therapy in Australia. And so what um, I deliver and what indeed other accredited consultants deliver is both individual and small group consultation and support. Now we use the word consultation because it's a bit different from broader clinical supervision. I also do offer that separately, but this is more focused specifically on skill development and confidence building in EMDR therapy. So of course that involves clinical case discussion but it's with a specific focus around the development of that clinician's skills in this therapeutic model so um, I offer individual sessions um, to new EMDR therapists and indeed to very experienced EMDR therapists um, we all need to continue with supervision and with support so that's something that a lot of EMDR therapists continue with for years to come um, so I offer that individually and I also monthly um, I run a group um, session online as as well for EMDR therapists to come together, which is both a cost-effective option, but also um, an opportunity for EMDR therapists to learn from each other and to build connections and networks. That sounds really great. And there'll be links to all of those in the show notes to your website and those consultation groups as well. What are, what are some of the common misperceptions about EMDR um, things that you might have heard either through your clients or through your supervisees coming into using EMDR as a tool? Well, firstly, that it is only eye movements that we use in EMDR. And that's not a surprise that that's a misconception because the, the name suggests as such. And that's how it was when it was first developed. Actually, Francine Shapiro, who developed it, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I think she's actually gone on to acknowledge that that name isn't um, as in, all encapsulating as it might be 
you know, ideally be now, but it's so well known by that. Why would you change it all these years later? The, um, the eye movements are just one form of bilateral stimulation. If that doesn't suit some patients or clients for some reason, we can use alternate um, bilateral sounds. So a headphone set that has um, a sound left and right or um, tactile bilateral stimulation that can be through um, a tapping type of um, scenario or um, a device where they hold um, alternating um, vibrating buzzers. So that's the first misconception is that it's just eye movements. The second, as I said before, is that it's a very rapid, quick uh, treatment that you get done and dusted in one or two sessions. Um, patients and clients often do come expecting you to start waving your fingers in front of their eyes very quickly and that's something we often have to um you know explore together with the client around what their expectations are and just realign those expectations um thirdly i think the um, other one is that it is um just for ptsd so i think that is what people often think and it actually is much much broader than that now as i mentioned before um, I think for EMDR therapists themselves, I think it's that it is a treatment that should be pretty simple and straightforward and quick. And a lot of people that come and see me for that, uh, that consultation do feel um, diminished in their confidence when they get into their clinical work and find that it takes longer than they might have expected or that it doesn't go to plan or that it's complex or the blocks come up. And so I'm often talking to people um, about how you will have some sessions where it becomes a bit complicated and you need to work on the same memory over the course of multiple sessions, for example. So there's a number of, of ways that, um, um, that I need to realign perhaps their own expectations and pressures that they put on themselves. One, one thing I hear in that is the it's in that expectation. What can clinicians do either to readjust their own expectations or how can they pitch it to clients so that from the start of that process, people know what to expect? Because if you do, like I said, if you Google it or YouTube, it, it just comes up with that first bit and people, and I have people ask me, so we're going to do the eye movement bit. I'm like, we're way, we're phases way away from that at the moment. And some of that has been in, the difficulty sometimes explaining the process. So what tips, I mean, if, if you care to share some, do you have on setting that expectation up very clearly for people? I think doing that in the very first session when you have the conversation about it is the first thing I would suggest. Do that early. Um, secondly, I would explain to clients that EMDR is, um, is an eight-phase model. And I do stress to clients that doesn't mean that every phase will take as long as each other phase, you know, it's every other phase, sorry. It's, it's going to be um, varied depending on the person. And so I just make it clear that from the outset, we are doing EMDR. So this conversation that you're having with the client is indeed phase one of EMDR therapy because you're building rapport, you're establishing goals for the work, you're deciding together what you're going to focus on, how much preparation is going to be needed. And that is actually phase one of EMDR therapy. So that's how I like to reframe it is that even those early conversations are the start of the therapy and this, this notion of not doing it until you are doing the eye movements is actually just a misnomer altogether. So make it quite clear that, um, that each of those preparation phases are the therapy. Uh, and so I think that's quite a useful thing to start with and also making it very clear that it's a treatment that is not one size fits all, that it is often modified and that those preparation phases can take anywhere from two 
or three sessions through to months or longer, depending on the client, and that you as the therapist are going to work collaboratively with the client to determine what their needs are and how it best be modified to meet those needs. So you were saying that for some people who've maybe had therapy before, some of those phases might not take as long to do. So if you've been working with someone from a, you know, more of a psychodynamic approach or CBT, and then you thought, we're not shifting this, we're going to switch to EMDR, can those first few phases be more of recapping and summarising work you've already done with them? Mm, absolutely. So phase two in EMDR therapy is what we call preparation and resourcing, which really means explaining what's going to happen in EMDR, reprocessing and also um, preparing that person for how they will be able to confidently handle thoughts and feelings that likely will come up during that therapy, um, reprocessing work, um, emotions like um, anxiety or fear, for example, that could come up along with a painful memory. And so you're absolutely right that that's where you could um, recap some of the mindfulness skills, for example, that they've previously learned or teach them some deep breathing strategies. And so it may be you teach them those from the, um, from the outset or it may be that they've done those things previously with other therapists and you ask them what's worked previously and, and what do you want to perhaps pick back up that you might have, have let go of and what other things are you already doing that you want to keep doing and where are some of the gaps? Are there gaps? Do we need to fill um, any additional uh, areas of, of confidence that you need um, like, for example, it may be that the person has you know strategies in certain circumstances but in other you know, in other triggering situations, they're not sure what to do. And so you might spend a bit of time, um, you know, refining their, their skills. That sounds, I mean, and you learn that in the training, obviously, but it, it's good to give the listeners who might not have heard much about EMDR a bit of an insight into how it looks kind of session by session and the different phases. So to, to myth bust some of those assumptions, I forgot to ask you how you stumbled into it. So you mentioned that you, uh, all the different hats that you wear, but um, we didn't quite cover what was it that interested you or kind of enticed you to, to do EMDR and then move through into the consultant role that you're in. Well, I was very fortunate to be working in the sexual assault counselling field and that was an area um, that, of course, um, involved trauma training. And so I was um, very um, lucky to have the opportunity to train with some of the giants in the trauma field, some of the big names that are out there, Bessel van der Kolk, for example. And many of these trainers that I um, had the opportunity to learn from talked about EMDR therapy and they spoke so highly of it. And this was about 10 years ago now. And at that time, EMDR was known to me, but it was not something that I um, practiced, of course, because I wasn't trained in it, but also it sounded a bit odd and I had scepticism about it, like I think a lot of people do. And the, the issue really for me was that I was working with these very traumatized clients and I felt very confident to ground them in the present moment, to upskill them in how to manage their symptoms. But I felt as though I didn't have adequate confidence to really help them experience more transformative, deeper change um, by resolving those memories themselves. I felt like I was helping people to manage symptoms rather than profoundly change their lives. And that led me to wonder whether EMDR therapy might be worth uh, exploring. And so then I did the training and the rest is history, really. I was so enamoured with it and I just found it, it 
boosted my confidence to deal directly with traumatic memories so much that I then just felt like I was a much better therapist. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've been selling my clients short all this time. Don't get me wrong, there are many other treatments out there that enable you to confidently um, manage, um, not just manage, process trauma, but I hadn't been trained in them. So I felt that EMDR was, was a great start. And since then, I've had such good outcomes with the treatment that I guess I've just done further advanced training. And I will say I've done a lot of additional training in other approaches that can be beautifully integrated with EMDR therapy, particularly um, treatments that focus on working with ego states or parts of a client's personality, things like schema mode work in schema therapy or internal family systems. These are other treatments that can be very nicely integrated with EMDR therapy when you're working with more complex clients. And so beyond that, really, I just did so much more training that I became very um, you know, confident in this, in this treatment. And really, I guess I was fortunate that I stumbled in it at a time when while it was building momentum in Australia, not every therapist was, was doing it. And so it meant that I carved out a niche for myself. And I think that's the biggest thing for me that I'm, I'm grateful for is that it's become my professional niche and it may change into the future. I mean, we all have seasons in our careers, but in the last 10 years, this has really been the, the beginnings of, of a private practice that I developed that is now, you know, the lead um, or one of the leading EMDR treatment services in the Outer East in Melbourne. Um, I've gone on to become, as I said, a trainer and as a consultant, which has enabled me to develop a whole new side of my, my, my um, service delivery. Um, I am incredibly passionate about it. The program that I run at the Melbourne Clinic, the, the psychiatric hospital where I work, is the first inpatient EMDR treatment program in Victoria, and I developed that. So the first hospital inpatient program. So really, it's just become something that I've been able to implement and, and extend in a number of areas of my professional work, and I couldn't imagine anything better. Uh, there's so many things I just want to, oh, I loved all that. And I was actually going to ask you what other approaches can you incorporate? So I'm glad that you mentioned the schema work and the interpersonal um, family systems work as well. Um, oh, I don't even know where to take that. It sounds like a bit of an addiction rather than, <laughs> well, I forgot the word you used, but I was thinking, is it an addiction? I I, th I think for some people, they train in EMDR therapy and they have it in their toolkit to use for simple PTSD, and that's okay. But for other people like me, they see it as a very integrative and transformative psychotherapy that really can inform your work with most clients. I'm not suggesting every client has trauma, but I'd say most clients have had some stuff happen in their life that informs their current difficulties. It may not be big T traumas like an assault, but it may have been that they were given a hard time at school, or they may have missed out on a job that really mattered to them, or they may have had a breakup that was deeply painful. I mean, these are events that shape our thinking, they shape our confidence, and they shape our sense of who we are in the world. And all of those are things that EMDR can be most helpful to address. So for for me, I think I don't see myself as a as a purist because I do use other approaches. I love things like 
ACT, for example, and that beautifully integrates into phase two in EMDR therapy, particularly where you're teaching the client skills to be able to more confidently handle their daily experiences. And also, of course, the values components of that, um, that therapy are, are most useful and helpful for all clients, I believe. But for me, I guess it's, it's that I see EMDR therapy as the overarching framework for my, for my clinical work these days. And I do, of course, integrate it though with other approaches. That's beautiful. Um, for those who might be listening and thinking, I've never really thought about training up to EMDR um, and they, they want to learn a bit more. Apart from going to the EMDR website, are there any other things that you, you suggest they maybe look into before they kind of, because it's a bit more of a, it's a deeper level of training, I think, if you want to do it confidently than just doing maybe an introduction to CBT, which you can integrate quite quickly. Um, what are some tips you have around that? Well, I think certainly to speak to colleagues who have done the training and get a sense of what their experience has been like, that's a great starting point. A lot of people now will perhaps know somebody that's done this training. Um, you mentioned the EMDR website, emdraa.org. That's the association in Australia. They certainly have some great information to start with. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's about doing the level one training, but then the the really important point for me to, to emphasise, I think, is to get some consult, consultation and supervision, whether that be um, individually or in a group. I do agree with you that this is a treatment that requires you to very confidently and, and directly deal with somebody's traumatic material, which is something that is not for the faint-hearted. It's a safe and effective treatment method, but it's unpredictable work. It's challenging work. So I think getting that support after the training to embed the skills into practice is the most important thing and do you have to do emdr on yourself to be able to deliver emdr well, a big part of the training is the practicum component. So it's highly experiential and there are hours of the training um, that involve both being the therapist and being the client. So certainly people are not required to go and do their own external EMDR treatment, but as part of the training, you do practice. And that is considered to be a very important component of the treatment, uh, training, sorry, so that you really understand what it's like to be in the client's seat, but also so that you can practice it. That's very important that you're actually practicing the skills in the training rather than just learning the knowledge. Um, but I would say personally that, that I have found myself that it's been very meaningful to do my own EMDR therapy. It may not be years of treatment. It could just be that there's a particularly, you know, nasty memory from your past that you still get distressed by or maybe there's a bit of a stuck point for you in your life and you know getting a course of, of, of sessions can certainly extend your um your ability to use it very effectively with your clients uh, i will say when you do advanced training in emdr depending on the path you take there's often additional ex, um, exposure to um, practicums where you are required to to practice with um, your ther fellow therapists it's not something social workers maybe talk about as much in general sort of social work, but when we move into more of a therapeutic space, I feel like there's a lot more discussion about the benefit of having been a participant in your own counselling or therapeutic um, psychotherapy or something like that. What are your thoughts on that? Because we don't talk about it as much in sort of case management or those kind of roles, but moving into a counselling space, it changes a bit. Indeed, I do think as a, as a psychotherapist, if a social worker does move into that space, um, that I 
I do believe that it is important to do our own work. Now, that may not be um, continuous ongoing therapy. In my life, it's been episodes of counselling that I've had. Um, I do feel that some of the best things that I've learned about being an effective therapist and a supervisor have been things that I've learned through my experiences of being a client of therapy and a supervisee. And so I think it's not just about what to do, but it's also sometimes about what not to do. Like I've had therapists who have made me feel uncomfortable and that's led me to reflect on my own practice and consider some of the things that I might be doing or not doing. Um, I've learned great things from those therapists in terms of ways of working effectively with particular issues as well. Um, what I will note is that I find it's difficult to have that dual role when you're a client because I find it difficult to take my therapist hat off it's almost like you're sort of seeing behind the curtain, you know, you when you're hearing the therapist talk to you in a particular way, you sort of know what they're what they're aiming to be doing. <laughs> Not always, but you kind of have a sense of, oh, I know where you're taking me here. Or they might teach you a skill that you know from your own training. And so I found that's actually been quite a challenge. And <laughs> having that conversation with the therapist is essential around how can I be the therapist uh, outside of here, but be the client in this room? And how can I be vulnerable? That's something I've struggled with but I would highly um, recommend that, that all therapists engage in their own therapy at some level. I think that's so interesting because that vulnerability and that shift in dynamic is a really valuable learning I guess learning option or op learning opportunity because you know I mean I work a lot with teens and families so you're putting often parents in that position of having to sit back or you know it's good for us to experience that discomfort because that's what shows up for our clients. I couldn't agree more. And it's so hard to be a thriving, successful professional and then be vulnerable in the counselling couch. Absolutely. And I think a lot of what comes up for us as therapists in the therapeutic space with clients, our own counter-transference uh, is, is, is connected to our own life journey. And so if we're not proactively... Uh, reflecting on our own experience and we're not committed to our own um, um, work in terms of our life journey, um, more on a, on a personal note, I mean, if we're not proactively exploring and addressing that, I think we're much less likely to be authentic with our clients and we're more likely to get triggered by our clients to have counter-transference responses with clients that are about our own stuff, um, to perhaps not be able to work as confidently with some clients because of our, of our own self criticism or our own hang-ups or maybe we've had a difficult experience with males in our own life and so therefore working with males may be challenging so we've all got blind spots and I think clinical supervision is one area in which we can explore those on a professional level but the personal journey is something that we also need to take responsibility for too. So moving I mean there that's really good advice and it kind of neatly I guess segues into the sort of last couple of questions that I get the um, the guests on the show to talk about is what do you recommend to those starting out in the field? What can they start doing from now, especially around this space? So whether it's a specific therapy like EMDR or that own personal journey, do you have any tips, tricks, advice for them? So I think certainly being reflective in our, in our practice as a social worker is something that we're all taught in our studies. And I think it is very, very important. So self 
self-reflection and building of self-awareness. So creating space for that in your life. So whether that means being part of a peer supervision group, whether it means um, being involved in um, individual clinical supervision as well, I would certainly recommend both of those um, and we're required indeed to, to maintain appropriate levels of supervision, but not just to tick boxes and meet compliance for CPD requirements. It's about a commitment to lifelong learning and it's about a, a willingness to look at our own blind spots and to recognise that we don't know it all and to be okay with not knowing it all. That's what I think I struggled with early in my career was feeling this need to be seen to be okay and to be seen to be knowledgeable. I look back in my first case management role at age 20, I was so immature and I was driving families around in a car when I had pee plates up. I don't quite know how that happened. But, you know, I just look back and I think, wow, if I had any advice to give to myself at that age, it'd just be, you don't know everything and you don't have to know everything. Be okay to ask questions and be committed to the lifelong learning process and look to mentors and other people in the field that are more experienced that you respect. Get yourself a mentor or a clinical supervisor. Have peers that you connect with. Don't be afraid to have a bit of um, black humour as well, not in a way that's disrespectful to clients, but in a way that enables us to to go the distance and to be um, supported in, in, in the very heavy um, content that we hear and, and, and that sort of thing. So having friends and, and, and others in, in the field that we can have some banter with in a way that's appropriate, of course, and respectful. Um, I think also um, to recognise that where you start isn't where you'll end up and to be open to that, um, not to feel like you have to have it mapped out. Uh, I think to be open to starting in a role that may not be exactly where you want to get to at the end of your career and being okay with starting there and being open to diverse learning experiences and to different places and, and people that you'll meet along the way, places that you'll end up in in your career and, um, and being open, I think, to that um, to that journey. That, that was so well said. Thank you. Um, the the speaker that we had on last week, Liz, was sort of talking about even in those every interaction you have with someone, even if you don't know at all, can still be paving the way for them to engage in further work. So you know, you were saying with the um, sexual assault work that once you learn EMDR, you felt like maybe you let them down, but the work is still relevant and useful. And even as a 20 year old driving people around with a pee plater, you could be creating a safe space, trust in seeking help, trust that someone cares, even if you, you don't know it all. Cause it's, it's such a humbling journey to become well, as you go through the field that I want mm -hmm. students and, and new professionals to, you don't have to know it all. It's okay to just be genuine, caring, warm, empathic. You bring in skills as you learn them. And that's still a really good job. It is absolutely, and I think ultimately it's the it's the being that and, and and who we are in the presence of our clients and our and our colleagues that is most important. I mean, for me, when I recruit people, um, I I hire for attitude and for commitment to to learning and to being part of a team, not to necessarily just the skill that that person has, because skill can be taught, but attitude can't. So I think um, I would encourage people to have a very positive, open-minded attitude um, to not get fixed and rigid in your way of thinking, to be open to learning, to being challenged in a respectful way and uh, to, to seeing where the journey takes you and to not be in a hurry to, to speed that up, just to let that unfold and to pass at every job, no matter how, you know, 
um, unsatisfying some jobs can be along the way, that every job is going to give you an opportunity for learning skills that will take you one step closer, perhaps to where eventually you'll end up. I'm so glad you said that because we had a recruiter on who did talk about attitude and networking and being, you know, willing to to ask questions because being teachable is a bigger, uh, more valuable skill than the actual skill of knowing a particular thing. So I'm, I'm so glad to hear someone who recruits on, on the side of that um, saying that same thing. Mm. Fantastic. Are there any resources, like if some people want to do a bit more reading or learn a little bit more, I know you mentioned Bessel van der Kolt, so there's, you know, he's got, you know, very well-known book, The Body Keeps Score, and there might be a few others. Is there anything you think people can read up or that you want to share? Well, as we mentioned before, the EMDR Association of Australia's website has some very, very useful information. There's a page that's for the public and they have resources. There are some videos on there and some other articles. If anybody's interested in reading more about EMDR therapy, that's where I would certainly direct them. Um, I think Bessel van der Kolk is an excellent um, a giant in the trauma field. And so that's obviously um, a, a good text to consider if you're, you know, a person's considering trauma um, as a possible field that they might like to move into as well. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your insights. And I'm sure we could have talked for hours on all these different topics that it brought in, but I think the, the listeners will be really interested to hear a bit more about EMDR. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources. And don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcast.